0: Saints. We're back with more of Shoshana Zuboff's The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. So I think the thumbnail for last week said part two, but this is actually part two. We are in chapter two, so maybe that's where I got confused. I hope that you are all doing well. It is Saturday where I'm recording from, and it's been a pretty good day. Just basically... Oh, I spent the morning reading a little bit of Eric Williams' *Slavery and Capitalism* because that's what is assigned for later this week. Um, so yeah, it's some, my some homework. So I'm doing it. I also got W.E.B. Du Bois's book. What's it called? *Black Reconstruction*? What is this? Here. Oh, *Black Reconstruction in America*. Um, so I'm excited. I'll, Try to read. We don't have to read that book, but um, I got it because my professor mentioned it and I have heard of it before. And then I spent the rest of the day, most of the day, working on my revision, my first revision. I don't know if there will be more, but I recently got a paper accepted into a journal that I submitted last summer and uh, they got back to me, I guess, about a month ago and gave me notes for revision. So i'm basically rewriting the paper um i mean it's the same topic and everything i'm using some of the same uh like previous draft but basically um they said my paper was unorganized and unfocused and i think those that's pretty typical for me (laughs) in my papers. I'm realizing that's a pattern, that's my weakness. So it's fun doing the second revision. It gives me a chance, you know, since I submitted it in the summer, I've read different things that I feel like could go in the paper and would fit um, even better than stuff that I had before. And uh, so today I wrote Pretty much like five pages. I'm on the beginning of the sixth. It's actually due tomorrow though, which I didn't realize. So hopefully I can write another six pages and, and read it and be done with it. I don't know. I might have to ask for an extension. But that's that was my today and uh, but I thought I would take a break and spend some time with all of you reading part two, the two modernities. Now we're reading out of a chapter called... Uh, august 9th 2011 setting the stage for surveillance capitalism it's a cold read so i have my highlighter here so i can highlight as i go on and as always you'll hear my comments capitalism evolves in response to the needs of people in a time and place i think that right there is an interesting perspective that capitalism is supposed to be for the people or it could be for the people And therefore evolves according to how we evolve henry ford was clear on this point mass production begins in the perception of a public need and you know i really think that adam smith is speaking from that place uh you know i can imagine only imagine that when adam smith uh, was living and breathing and jiving that You know you didn't have a lot of options maybe for products maybe that the ease of life that didn't have like a ton of conveniences Uh, maybe certain things weren't always accessible the quality the quantity and so it you know probably made sense in his time to to suggest those things even if uh, i say this maybe, <laughs> with hesitation, even if he felt that it wouldn't be necessarily great for those working in the factory. I mean, but why couldn't it have been that, you know, those who had to work in the factory doing um, mundane, repetitive tasks would not have to work that much. They would get paid really well and they could work out of the seven days and so that i mean his idea adam smith's idea of compensation was to have cheap education and like cheap entertainment but if you could have just paid them well and had them work not so much and work not you know at a super fast rate then that seems like that could have been a better compensation but he didn't think about that At a time when the Detroit automobile manufacturers were preoccupied with luxury vehicles, Ford stood alone in his recognition of a nation newly modernizing individuals, farmers, wage earners, and shopkeepers who had little and wanted much but at a price they could afford. Their demand issued from the same conditions of existence that summoned Ford and his men as they discovered the transformational power of a new logic of standardized, high-volume, low-unit-cost production. Ford's famous $5 day was emblematic of a systemic logic of reciprocity. In paying assembly line workers higher wages than anyone had yet imagined... Oh, there you go. We were just talking about that. He recognized that the whole enterprise of mass production rested on a thriving population of mass consumers. Although the market forum and his boss... So it's interesting. Zuboff is kind of... It sounds like she's kind of detailing a more ideal perspective and time of capitalism than now. Although the market forum and its bosses had many failings and produced many violent acts, its populations of newly modernizing individuals were valued as necessary sources of customers and employees. It depended upon its communities in ways that would eventually lead to a range of institutionalized reciprocities. On the outside, the drama of access to affordable goods and services was bound by democratic measures and methods of oversight that asserted and protected the rights and safety of workers and consumers. On the inside were durable employment systems, career ladders, and steady increases in wages and benefits. Indeed, considered from the vantage point of the last 40 years, during which this market form was systematically deconstructed, Oh, that's interesting. It's because she's giving us, like, a... I guess a time. Its reciprocity with the social order, however vexed and imperfect, appears to have been one of its most salient features. The implication is that new market forms are most productive when they are shaped by an alliance to the actual demands and mentalities of people. I mean, this line of argument is similar to... You know, I guess the same one as, similar as the same one, similar to, the one uh, about, you know, how do we get companies to be more environmentally conscious? Will we make it profitable for them? We we have to market environmentalism as being beneficial to those companies. Like for instance, and I think maybe this led to some greenwashing, but (laughs) you know, you could, Walmart, let's say, because Walmart and Target did this, you could start offering organic produce and products to your customers and you will attract a new kind of audience in addition to the one that you already have and uh, so you know so that might support organic farmers you know or food companies with more ethical practices that are more conscious of that etc so um it sounds like the same argument the great sociologist emile durkheim who i have not read but i would like to made this point at the dawn of the 20th century and his insight will be a touchstone for us throughout this book okay observing the dramatic upheavals of industrialization in his time factories specialization i'm reading slowly because i'm highlighting the complex division of labor durkheim understood oh we're talking about durkheim okay that although economists could describe these developments they could not grasp their cause he argued that these sweeping changes were caused by the changing needs of the people and that economists were and remain systematically blind to these social facts quote the division of labor appears to us otherwise than it does to economists. For them, it essentially consists in greater production. For us, this greater productivity is only a necessary consequence, a repercussion of the phenomenon. If we specialize, it is not to produce more, but it is to enable us to live in the new conditions of existence To or, sorry, that have been made for us. The sociologists identify the perennial human quest to live effectively in our conditions of existence as the invisible causal power that summons the division of labor, technologies, work organization, capitalism, and ultimately civilization itself. Each is forged in the same crucible of human need that is produced by what Durkheim called the always intensifying violence of the struggle for effective life. If work becomes more divided, it is because the struggle for existence is more acute. The rationality of capitalism reflects this alignment, however imperfect, with the needs that people experience as they try to live their lives effectively, struggling with the conditions of existence that they encounter in their place and time." It's interesting to think about, you know, what we still and what we newly struggle with as modern human beings. With all of our conveniences, we have not found, most of us have not found, that it gives us more emotional well-being, or physical well-being, or even leisure time. A lot of us are trying to figure out how we can have more time to ourselves, work not being a time to ourselves, unless you are the type of person that has a vocation. I consider myself as the type of person that has a vocation, yet I still think there could be adjustments to academia, especially on the community college, let's say even adjunct side, that you have to teach so many classes in order to survive. And that's not necessarily the most enjoyable or beneficial to students um, approach. If professors were only teaching two classes a semester, then they could devote a lot of attention to those students. And if the, the caps on classes were, let's say a reasonable, 20 students each or even 25 but 20 would be much better 18 to 20 students so that then you'd have like 40 students for each semester you could spend more time on their essays, their papers, giving them feedback um, you know building a relationship then you could logically teaching what many people of the communities I just mentioned teach, which is like seven or eight classes, you know. We'll teach as many, and I'm full-time at the, at the state um, college, but I still teach as many classes as I can make because my base salary is nothing. <laughs> so, um, I won't just say that. It's nothing in terms of uh, the cost of living in the place where I am. Um, you know, unless I rent a room with someone I find on Craigslist um, instead of having my own place. So, So, you know, so what did the promise of convenience not grant us? When we look through the lens, we can see that those eager customers for Ford's incredible Model T and the new customers of iPods and iPhones are expressions of the conditions of existence that characterize their era. In fact, each is the fruit of distinct phases of a centuries-long process known as individualization. That is the human signature of the modern era. Ford's mass consumers were members of what has been called the first modernity but the conditions of the second modernity produced a new kind of individual for whom the apple inversion sorry i'm highlighting again and the many digital innovations that followed would become essential so how have the things we have become essential when you know for the greatest amount of history before us we didn't have them The second modernity summoned the likes of Google and Facebook into our lives and in an unexpected twist helped to enable the surveillance capitalism that would follow. What are these? And see, that's what I think that as human beings we are bad at. Um, Thinking long term, thinking about the long term consequences and having the self-control and the discipline and the discernment to say Yeah, let's not move forward with that. Even though we can, the risk of the consequences outweigh the benefits of quote-unquote progress. When has anyone ever done that? I just want to know. Maybe it's not good to make an atomic bomb, you know? I mean, maybe not do it. What are these modernities and how do they matter to our story? The advent of the individual as the locus of moral agency and choice initially occurred in the West, where the conditions for this emergence first took hold. First, let's establish that the concept of individualization should not be confused with the neoliberal ideology of individualism. Oh, I think that's good underline those two words that shifts all the responsibility for success or failure to a mythical atomized isolated individual doomed to a life of perpetual competition and disconnected from relationships community and society neither does it refer to the psychological process of individual individuation that is associated with the lifelong exploration of self-development instead individualization is a consequence of the long-term processes of modernization. Oh, that paragraph is really important. I feel like I want to read it three times. Um, So we have individualization and then individualism. I feel like Byung Chul Han, like, that's him. He talks about individualism, perpetual competition and disconnection. But then there is individuation which i apparently can't say very well um that is about self-development and that sounds like a really good thing hmm, okay i'm gonna write a one two three Until the last few minutes of human history, each life was foretold in blood and geography, sex and kin, rank, and religion. I am my mother's daughter. I am my father's son. The sense of the human being as an individual emerged gradually over centuries, clawed from this ancient vice. Around 200 years ago, we embarked upon the first modern road where life was no longer handed down, one generation to the next according to the traditions of village and clan this first modernity marks the time when life became individualized for great numbers of people as they separated from traditional norms meanings and rules that meant each life became an open-ended reality to be discovered rather than a certainty to be enacted oh that sounds like sartre would love that idea freedom even where the traditional world remains intact for many people today, it can no longer be experienced as the only possible story. I often think about the courage of my great-grandparents. What mixture of sadness, terror, and exhilaration do they feel when, in 1908, determined to escape the torments of the Cossacks in their tiny village of Kiev, outside of Kiev, they packed their five children, including my four-year-old grandfather Max, and all their belongings into a wagon and pointed the horses toward a steamer bound for America. Like millions of other pioneers of this first modernity, they escaped a still feudal world and found themselves improvising a profoundly new kind of life. Max would later marry Sophie and build a family far from the rhythms of the village that birthed them. The Spanish poet Antonio Machado capture the exhilaration and daring of these first modernity individuals in his famous song traveler there is no road the road is made as you go this is what search has meant a journey of exploration and self-creation not an instant swipe to already composed answers lol google search Still, the new industrial society retained many of the hierarchical motifs of the older feudal feudal world in its patterns of affiliation based on class, race, occupation, religion, ethnicity, sex, and the leviathans of mass society, its corporations, workplaces, unions, churches, political parties, civic groups, and school systems. This new world order of the mass and its bureaucratic logic of concentration, centralization, standardization, and administration still provided solid anchors guidelines and goals for each life compared to their parents and all the generations before Sophie and Max had to make things up on their own but not everything Sophie knew she would raise a family Max knew he would earn their living you adapted to what the world had to offer and you followed the rules nor did anyone ask your opinion or listen if you spoke you were expected to do what you were supposed to do and little by little you made your way You raised a nice family and eventually you'd have a nice, you'd have a house, oh it doesn't say nice, (laughs) that was my hope I guess, a house, car, washing machine, and refrigerator. Mass production pioneers like Henry Ford and Alfred Sloan had found a way to get you these things at a price you could afford. So yeah, so I kind of see where she's going, you know, and then I guess we are third modernity. It's kind of like what Michel Foucault does a little bit in like um looking at the genealogy of power and the move from like resistance bodily more obvious power to like the more subtle pernicious powers of various institutions and who cre- that create norms. If there was anxiety, it reflected the necessity of living up to the requirements of one's roles one was expected to suppress any sense of self that spilled over the edges of the given social role even at considerable psychic cost socialization and adaptation were the materials of a psychology and a sociology that regarded the nuclear family as factory for the production of personalities ready made for conformity into the social norms of mass society those factories that's deep that's I don't know. Uh, Intense. Those factories also produced a great deal of pain. The feminine mystique, closeted homosexuals, church-going atheists, and back-alley abortions. Eventually, though, they even produced people like you and me. That's so interesting, because I can't help compare what people say to adult children who grew up in families where the parents were narcissistic or had some kind of antisocial personality disorder or were alcoholics or just emotionally immature, unavailable. How those people still have imprisoning childhoods i guess even i saw something recently that said that even if you had a good childhood you still have to heal from certain traumas and um i'm laughing but no it's not funny um you know and i mean i i hope that's not true but you know if it is it gives us like i guess more compassion toward each other um i don't know it's just interesting I guess when writers say people like you and me, I wonder who's not included in that. When I set out on the open road, there were few answers, nothing to emulate, no compass to follow except for the values and dreams that I carried inside me. I was not alone. The road was filled with so many others on the same kind of journey. The first modernity birthed us. But we brought a new mentality to life, a second modernity. What began as a modern migration from traditional life ways bloomed into a new society of people born to a sense of psychological individuality with its double-edged birthright of liberation and necessity. We experience both the right and the requirement to choose our own lives. We have to be existential beings. No longer content to be anonymous members of the mass, we feel our entitlement to self-determination, an obvious truth to us that would have been an impossible act of hubris for Sophie and Max. This mentality is an extraordinary achievement of the human spirit, even as it can be a life sentence to uncertainty, anxiety, and stress. That's why we like the existentialists since the second half of the 20th century the individualization story has taken this new turn toward a second modernity industrialization modernity and the practices of mass production this sentence has no commas. okay industrialization modernity And the practices of mass production capitalism, at its core, produced more wealth than had ever been imagined possible. Where democratic politics, distributional policies, access to education, healthcare, and strong civil society institutions complemented that wealth, A new society of individuals first began to emerge. Hundreds of millions of people gained access to experiences that had once been the preserve of a tiny elite. University education, travel, improved life expectancy, disposable income, rising standards of living, broad access to consumer goods, varied communication and information flows, and specialized, intellectually demanding work. I often think that People, I guess if you're over the age of 40, you have enough life to look back and see when things were different. I think every generation probably has, at least now of recent, probably has some kind of evolution or transition historically, culturally, technologically, etc. Um, where they can look back at the first 20 years of their lives and see how very different the, you know, the last 20 years of their life up till the present. And so, you know, like people like me can say, just with something small, like learning languages. Theoretically, it's, it seems like it would be so much easier to learn a language now let's say, like, as an adult, a second language because of Duolingo and Busu, and, you know, the travel to different countries is more accessible. Um, I can use the internet and Zoom with a tutor from, you know, that is native to the country that speaks the language I want to learn. Whereas 20 years ago... Maybe you could buy, like, a tape or a CD. You could take a class. Maybe you could travel if you had the money. Um, But, you know, uh, there was no, like, maybe internet. I'm starting to... I guess there was internet. Um, Not, you know, the internet of today. Not the internet of today. Um, Not the computers of today. And so... I mean... There's probably like uh, I don't know a, the Commodore sixty four was my first computer. So I, I'm like, was there a language game that you could play on that? I don't know, <laughs> maybe. What did I even do on that computer? AOL chat, maybe. Just chatting with random criminals. Um, I, I don't know, it just didn't seem safe. But um, you know, so theoretically, but. You know, have I learned a second language? No. <laughs> I, haven't. I haven't. And then we have to say, like, at what cost? I guess that's why people, when we get old, we get, like, nostalgic or at least ask, you know, like, what if, what if the world hadn't evolved to have all of these, like, lovely little technologies and conveniences today? Would we be happier? I think... In a way, because um technology and then just like the advent of like reality shows and like the different cultural uh like the different ways culture has evolved um and society has evolved. I just think ignorance is bliss. <laughs> I would like not have eaten the apple, I would have been like, get away Lilith. <laughs> I wanna stay in the paradise. I'm going to stay stupid. Um, Ignorance is bliss in terms of like, if you didn't know that the Kardashians or the people on Selling Sunset or wherever existed, if you just kind of thought that the richest people were whatever the, were whatever, was whatever the, the, were whatever the upper limits of wealth was in your residential neighborhood. You wouldn't be able to compare yourself and so those needs and desires wouldn't be created because you didn't know. You wouldn't have known they existed. So maybe that kept you, that would keep you down but it wouldn't make you sad or unhappy or dissatisfied, you know, Um, unless you just felt those ways because of the hardship of your life, depending on what level you were living at in your neighborhood. But You know you wouldn't get to know like we have access even if you're making forty thousand dollars a year or under fifty thousand dollars a year you have access in a way to some of the life of like the top whatever it is like one percent you know i mean there should be no reason that i like middle class lower middle class working class because of my salary, but I guess not working class because of my profession and how it's seen. Um, I shouldn't know Paris Hilton. I shouldn't know of Paris Hilton or people like the Kardashians because I'm not in their tax bracket. I'm not in their world. I would never meet them in person. Like, how would I ever know about them? It's not like they, like, invented anything, so, you know information probably would not get around so you know there's that and uh, how easy would it be for people to go no contact with their parents if they needed to if um you didn't have your like an iphone right you could just pick up and leave and it would be so much easier you would not have to like change your phone number and etc and not have social media <laughs> I was just watching this YouTube video of this woman who started her YouTube video after her adult daughter went no contact it's called estranged parents and um, she like stalks her daughter's Instagram and she's like at least I get this part of my daughter's life I'm Like All right. that is a problem for people who are trying to um get away from others the hierarchical social compact and mass society of the first modernity sorry i just felt like guilty i hope certain people don't listen to my videos um <laughs> can i finish reading i'm distracted now but my emotional guilt um we can do it this is i guess this is a little bit of a long chapter there's like two more pages left the hierarchical social compact and mass society of the first modernity promised predictable rewards but their very success was the knife that cut us loose and sent us tumbling onto the shores of the second modernity propelling us toward more intricate and richly patterned lives education and knowledge work increased There's another one. I just wish there was more punctuation uh, in some of these sentences. Education and knowledge... Knowledge work? Is knowledge work like a... I mean, use a hyphen, maybe. Or... Is that what it is? Yeah. Uh, Increased mastery of language and thought, the tools with which we create personal meaning and form our own opinions. Communication... Information consumption and travel stimulated individual self consciousness and imaginative capabilities. Informing, okay, I guess we don't want to be blissfully ignorant, we need to evolve. Fine. Informing perspectives, values, and attitudes in ways that could no longer be contained by predefined roles or group identity, improved health and longer lifespans provided the time for a self-life to deepen and mature, fortifying the legitimacy of personal identity over and against a priori social norms. Even when we revert to traditional roles, these are choices now rather than absolute truths imposed at birth. As the great clinician of identity Eric Erickson once described it, the patient of today suffers most under the problem of what he should believe and who he should or might be or become. That's true. While the patient of early psychoanalysis suffered most under inhibitions which prevented him from being what and who he thought he knew he was which is which is worse this new mentality has been most pronounced in wealthier countries but research shows significant pluralities of second modernity individuals in nearly every region of the world the first modernity suppressed growth and the expression of self in favor of collective solutions but by the second modernity the self is all we have The new sense of psychological sovereignty broke upon the world long before the internet appeared to amplify its claims. We learned through trial and error how to stitch together our lives. That's true. Nothing is given. Everything must be renewed, renegotiated, and reconstructed on the terms that make sense to us. Family, religion, sex, gender, morality, marriage, community, love, nature, social connections, political participation, career, food, Indeed. It was this new mentality and its demands that summoned the internet and burgeoning information apparatus into our everyday lives. That's interesting that she's arguing that there was a need that created the internet. I mean, I guess I guess you could say that about every invention because how else would we like dream it up unless there was like a lack? The burdens of life without a fixed destiny turned us toward the empowering information-rich resources of the new digital milieu as it offered new ways to amplify our voices and forge our own chosen patterns of connection. So profound is this phenomenon that one can say without exaggeration that the individual as the author of his or her own life is the protagonist of our age your own main character whether we experience this fact as emancipation or affliction oh it depends i guess western modernity had formed around around a canon of principles and laws that confer inviolable individual rights and acknowledge the sanctity of each individual life however it was not until the second modernity that felt experience began to catch up with formal law this felt truth has been expressed in new demands to make actual in every day what is already already established in law that's interesting i don't know if i completely understand that sentence There's a footnote. Maybe I'll look at it later. In spite of its liberating potential, the second modernity was slated to become a hard place to live. And our conditions of existence today reflect this trouble. Some of the challenges of the second modernity arise from the inevitable costs associated with the creation and sustenance of one's own life. But second modernity instability is also the result of institutionalized shifts in economic and social policies and practices associated with the neoliberal paradigm and its rise to dominance. This far-reaching paradigm has been aimed at containing, rechanneling, and reversing the secular wave of second Modernity claims to self-determination and the habitats in which those claims can thrive. We live in this collision between a century-old story, centuries-old story of modernization, and a decades-old story of economic violence that thwarts our pursuit of effective life. I mean, that's true. I think that a lot of people of us feel thwarted, um, whether it's little things we could tweak. Or, you know, just ask yourself, what fantasies do you have of lifestyle? I have a fantasy of going to a month-long retreat and being a public intellectual and only having to teach one class at the university. And it would be such a great class. You know, like, I still want to teach. I just want to do it in a way where it's quality over quantity. And I think that's this that's the same for a lot of people. A lot of people don't mind working, especially if they chose and pursued their line of working work and you know, you basically love it. But even if you don't really love it and you are just kind of in it because you didn't know what else to do or that's just where life took you, I think a lot of us wouldn't mind it whatever category we're in, if we just didn't have to do so much of it. It's the quantity that inhibits the quality of life. There is a rich and compelling literature that documents this turning point in economic history. And my aim here is simply to call attention to some of the themes in this larger narrative that are vital to our understanding of the collision, the condition of existence that summoned both the Apple miracle and surveillance capitalism's subsequent gestation and growth. All right, so that's the end of this second um part so the the actual second part so thank you so much if you stayed with me um thanks for the company give me your comments below and questions and thoughts not questions that i can answer but questions like to have a discussion um there are this uh chapter this chapter is quite long we're on page 37 and it ends on page 62 uh, the next sections are Section 3, The Neoliberal Habitat. Section 4, The Instability of the Second Modernity. Oh, that's pretty long. 5, at 5, we finally get to a third modernity, which I think is so interesting and probably where she really gets into it. And then Part 6, is entitled surveillance capitalism fills the void and then there's a part seven for a human future so maybe like her vision of the ideal oh and there is okay there's it still goes on this is the last one I think uh, section 8 naming and taming which is super, super short. So, so yes, I plan to go through more of these sections, you know, especially if there's interest. I am giving, I'm co-hosting a talk about Ayn Rand uh, at my college at the end of this month. And so Thanksgiving break is coming up, so that's probably what I'll be reading. I think I'm going to read, I have What is Capitalism, so I might read another chapter in that or another essay in that since her books are mainly like collections of essays from herself and other people. But I also have The Virtue of Selfishness, um, so I think I'll read that. And then I also have Atlas Shrugged and Fountainhead. So we studied Ayn in my political economy class earlier this semester. So I got a bit of a start, but I'm definitely gonna have to read a lot more of her. So you might see some videos on her. We just thought students would be interested in talking about that philosopher. So I think it's a good idea to have a talk just focusing on one philosopher and their works. I think it makes it more fun to prep, because um, you have really have a focus. I think it's probably easier to prep than what I tried to do for my first talk where I was just by myself. It went well, except we didn't have a sound system. So gonna make sure we have a sound system this time, because uh, people could really only hear me. I could hear everyone that was like moving around um, I just had a question, so my question was, how can philosophy help us cope with the human predicament, which I guess sounds kind of pessimistic, I might have said this before, I might have told you this before, but, yeah, I'm super glad, um, and my colleague is, like, I guess I don't really, like, I hadn't really known her before this, but she's, like, so nice, um, so I just think it's, like, so great to work, you know, it's so great to work with people if, you, if they're just, like, good people, you know? And <laughs> they're nice to you. So, and smart, and, like, she uh, came up with focusing on Ayn Rand, so I thought that was really cool. Um, I, of course, if it were really just me and I was doing one philosopher, it would be Byung-Chul or Heidegger. So, those are my peeps cur- currently. Um, so let me know in the comments, uh, you know, what you think about what I just read, what you're doing over Thanksgiving break, and if it's called something different than at your school um, or at your work, or you don't have one because of where you live, I guess that would also be the case, um, and, uh, you know, what you're reading. And uh, I don't want to assume everyone that listens is a college student, but I'm just so much on the academic calendar that it's hard not to say, like, tell me what you're going to do on winter break. <laughs> so, but if you, you know, are also on the academic calendar or something like that, you can tell me. I'm going to be reading this winter break um, some Hegel, some Nietzsche, and more Marx because I'm taking a class on those three philosophers next semester. I need to get the syllabus for my professor. And I'm super excited about that. Um, So I already got together my little stack of Hegel and Nietzsche and then I have like one book for Marx. And I'll be adding to that. And so next semester and maybe this winter break, you'll see some uh, videos on those three professors. So let me know if you have uh, a preference of one over the other. I've read a ton of Marx. I'm not finished with, I I really didn't get that far of in the birth of tragedy and i'm about halfway or more through daybreak i know the title can be there are other versions of that title but mine is called daybreak um so i don't have i think it's called twilight of the gods i don't have i guess his last writings is there one called like eke homo maybe The new human. I don't have that one. And I want to get Hegel's, there's a Penguin Classics book on aesthetics with Hegel that I want to get. And then there's a $61 uh, book on religion from Hegel that I probably will get. So, and I can't remember what the fourth one was. Oh, maybe that is four. Yeah, two of Nietzsche and two of Hegel. So, yeah, so that's what I'm going to be doing and probably working on my book project. But, yeah, this weekend is my paper, so wish me luck. And I'll probably do some study with me uh, sessions during winter break because that's how I feel, like, less lonely. So, So, hopefully, I'll see all of you there. Thanks, everyone.